Well, if you have your Bibles, let me encourage you to go to Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 this morning. And I love this small book in the Bible. A lot of times it's looked over and comes just before First and Second Timothy, and there's a lot of truth found in the book of First and Second Timothy. And Second Timothy, of course, being the last book that the Apostle Paul would have the opportunity to write before being martyred for the faith. He's writing to next generation of Christians. He's writing specifically to a young man by the name of Timothy. And he's encouraging him to continue his stand and his walk with the Lord even in dark days, even when there's persecution and trials coming into his, into his life. But then we come across this book of Titus, and Titus is yet another young man that the Apostle Paul had the opportunity to disciple and train and then send off to go out and minister to folks. And we're going to find here what Titus's role uh, was in ministry and, and what the Apostle Paul is admonishing him to do. Let's look over at chapter 3. And if you'd stand for the reading of God's Word, we're going to read the first five verses of Titus chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready... Look at this phrase, to every good work, to speak evil of no man, to be no brawlers, be, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that, the kindness and love of God, our Savior toward man, appeared. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Let us pray once more before we dive into this message. Lord, we do thank You again for today. Father, I pray that You be with this message. I pray that You give me the right words to say. Fill me with Your Spirit. Father, there are a lot of different people represented here in this building, all different walks of life. But Lord, we have, uh, I believe, many of us, if not all of us, have one commonality, and that is you. The fact that we put our full faith and trust in you. And Lord, with that in mind, I pray that uh, as the preaching goes forth and as we put you in your rightful place as preeminent, I pray that you reveal things to us that we need and Lord, that Your Spirit will work in each of our hearts specifically. While this message in some regard may be broad, I pray that You'll deal specifically with us and how we can apply it. I pray that we leave here having both heard Your Word and then putting it into practice and being doers of Your Word. Again, be with my lips. I pray that You'll be with uh, me. Fill me with Your Spirit and Your power. Give me great boldness as I preach. And uh, help us today. And we ask this in Your name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. When the book of Titus was written, it was the local church, the local New Testament church, was a new concept. Local communities and believers were exploding all over, and Jews, with the Jews and the Gentiles around the world, it was an exciting time to be alive. 
Jesus had ascended and He had left the work of, uh, of, of sharing the Gospel, going and preaching the Gospel to every creature and baptizing converts and discipling them. He had left it in their hands. And we understand as we read through the book of Acts that even that church that was located in Jerusalem uh, had been growing leaps and bounds. And uh, on the day of Pentecost, we know that uh, there were so many that came uh, to know Jesus Christ their personal Lord and Savior, and then followed uh, His command of being baptized. The same day, there were added to them about 3,000 souls. And the church there in Jerusalem was exploding. And we know that as time went on, great persecution came to that church in Jerusalem. And that persecution uh, caused that fire that was uh, so wild and so hot and, 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 and began to spread now into other parts of the globe. And those churches then began to meet in small communities and houses, and they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. And the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ began to spread even further than it was in the early days. And this new concept is beginning to catch, and a culture is being established. I think oftentimes in history of some amazing events that unfolded that became what we now know as big endeavors. I like history. I like reading about different uh, entrepreneurs and CEOs and great leaders who were able to accomplish things far beyond what they could originally imagine. And, and one person I, I find fascinating, and uh, I don't know that uh, maybe their character was, was uh, totally great in some uh, regards, but one person I find fascinating to read about is that of Steve Jobs. And in my pocket, I possess an iPhone. I think when uh, uh, Steve Jobs was sitting down and he was developing the uh, early Apple computer and, and all that would transpire from that, I'm not sure he knew that he would be creating a culture uh, of people that would be addicted to an iPhone. I find myself often pulling out my phone, even just a moment ago as I'm sitting here uh, on the front row, just out of habit, pulling out my phone and just checking to make sure there's no pressing notifications and things that I need to be aware of. You know, I don't think anybody truly knew the magnitude of Apple computers way back in its early days. But now, boy, do we all know what Apple has accomplished in its work. And uh, some have uh, taken time to uh, estimate uh, what, uh, what has transpired. And if you had invested $1,000 in Apple stock back in January of 1984, today you would have $1,593,809. What a return on investment that is. $1,000 to uh, $1.5 million, that's quite the investment. You know, the local church, I think as it was getting started, I'm not sure that the early disciples truly knew the magnitude and what would truly transpire as God's power and God's anointing would fall on men and they would uh, preach the Gospel with all boldness and clarity and churches would be established in, in a multiplicity of cities. 
As we get to this passage of Scripture, the book of Titus is written in the early stages of the local church. And Paul wrote to the churches in Galatia and warned them of false doctrines and work-based salvations that had crept into their churches. And Paul wrote in the church of Corinth and corrected them over deep carnality that had made its way into the church. To be a part of church movement in Paul's time was very exciting. We get to this man now, Titus, who was a disciple of Christ, who had been trained by Paul. There were church communities that had popped up over in this island of Crete. But they were quite dysfunctional. Their doctrines were crooked and their church leaders were corrupt. They lacked organization. Paul sent Titus to set these things straight. If you're in the book of Titus, I want to encourage you to go over to chapter 1. Look at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. To Titus, mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, look at this phrase, that thou mayest set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed. What did Titus do? He went around to these small churches in the island of Crete and he removed and rebuked the corrupt leaders in charge. He replaced them with church leaders who were qualified. He created a culture within each of these churches of good works. He challenged and trained men and women to set aside carnality and selfishness for the purpose of being spiritual and productive for the Lord. As I read some of these verses, I want you to see a pattern of what the Apostle Paul is trying to emphasize with Titus. Look at Titus chapter 2, verse number 7. In all things, show thyself a pattern of, what's those next two words? Good works, in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, and sincerity. Jump down to verse number 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of what? Good works. Come on, participate here, church. Verse uh, Chapter 3, verse number 1. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, be ready to every what? There we go. Verse number 8 of chapter 3. This is a faithful saying that these things I, I will that thou affirm uh, constantly that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain what? These things are good and profitable unto men. Finally, verse number 14. And let ours also learn to maintain what? For necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. God desires the local church to do good works. In the power of the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish good works. The title of today's message is, Be Ready to Every Good Work. The church body is a place where everyone should come together and use their God-given gifts and abilities for the purpose of loving the Lord with all their being and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Fulfillment in life is found when we wholly submit ourselves to these two commandments and the church is a place where we are to do it. A lot of times we have 
uh, things that God allows us to do. Some of us, we are great uh, administrators. Some of us, we are great leaders. Some of us, we are great orators. Some of us, we have uh, the ability to use some kind of musical instrument. Some of us can sing. Uh, some of us are just friendly and uh, hospitable. Some of us like to serve. Some of us have uh, uh, different things. And God has given us those things, sure, that we can use without the church, but certainly that we should be using within the church. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to Titus is, hey, Titus, I'm sending you here to set in order the things that are wanting. There are things that are out of whack. There's things that are not in their proper place. There's things that are lacking. And Titus, I want you to go into these churches. I want you to establish the right men. And I want there to be a culture within the church where they are busy doing the work of the Lord using their talents, using their gifts. And today, we need to be ready to every good work. Being ready to every good work means that you are prepared. can't do a good work if you're not prepared. Being ready to every good work means that you are quick to take action. Sometimes, uh, I, 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 I'm a little slow to uh, discern things and see how things are unfolding. How many of you have ever seen somebody fall right in front of you. I mean, just absolutely flat on their face, fall, and you're just kind of a little shocked, right? And you're kind of like, where did that come from? And then you see somebody kind of over the corner, they run and they help that person up, and you were just standing right there, and, and, and helping that person didn't even really cross your mind because you were just a little shocked. So many times we have things where opportunity arises, but we're a little slow to the draw. Where God says, hey, I'm giving you an opportunity to use your gifts and abilities. I'm giving you an opportunity to do a good work, but you're a little slow to it. It's not something that you were prepared for. It's not something that the muscle memory has, uh, has developed enough for you to be ready. I remember when uh, I was in high school, I used to play basketball uh, quite often and when I first got out on the court after uh, 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 the first couple times of, of playing basketball, I would get the ball on the court and I'd be very slow to know what to do. Right? How many of you ever played some kind of sport and the first time you got on there you were a little shocked? You're a little bit like, uh, I don't really know what to do with the ball right now, right? Uh, forget all the hours of practice. Forget all the video that you watch. Forget all the things you think you are when you're on the basketball court. When the opportunity arises, you just kind of say, oh, um, I don't exactly know what to do here. Right? But what happens is as you begin to develop that that skill and you begin to work more in practice and you begin to handle the ball more in game time decisions, uh, you become better at it. I remember the very last game uh, of my uh, basketball uh, time in high school. I remember we were at an away game and, and uh, one thing led to another and the game was neck and neck. We were tied with just a few seconds left. And I remember standing there and uh, being in similar situations in the past and, and, and just knowing how my uh, team had worked through some of these times. And I just figured, hey, if I stand at this spot, uh, this uh, the friend of mine, the point guard, he's going to pass me the ball, and I'm going to have the opportunity here to take the last shot. The coach drew up the play, and sure enough, we got out there, and, uh, and, and I didn't hesitate when I got the ball. 
I knew this is just like all the other times. It's time to play. It's time to put all those hours of practice, all those four, uh, five years of playing basketball throughout high school, and time to seal the deal and get things done. And the opportunity arose and was able to uh, uh, score that last second shot and, and, and get that. Hey, listen, it's not about basketball today. We're talking about something way more important. We're talking about doing a good work for the Lord. And sometimes opportunity arises. And at first we are a little shell-shocked. At first we are, oh, I don't exactly know what to do. But then when we develop our spiritual muscles and become a little bit more discerning, all of a sudden opportunity arises. All of a sudden somebody comes up to you at the gas station and they say, hey, I heard you go to that church. Hey, I see you have a flyer in your door. Uh, what does it mean to be a Christian? Uh, they have that, 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 uh, fl- uh, that, that, that jailer uh, that the Apostle Paul uh, was able to talk to, uh, that Philippian jailer, and, and, and they say something along the lines of, what must I do to be saved? And you you don't need to hesitate because you've developed your spiritual muscles enough to know, hey, I can go right into the gospel and share what it means to be a Christian. But you have to be ready. You have to be prepared. You have to be quick to take action. You are trained and capable. You are emotionally, spiritually, and physically available. A poor rule that many live by is that I am the exception to the rule. You understand, I, 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 lately the Lord has greatly convicted me in this area. Maybe if you're a guy, you struggle with something very similar, and that is stubbornness. Nobody's going to change me. I have my mind made up about what I believe about the Bible. I have my mind made up about uh, how to uh, uh, handle my home and how to be a husband. I have my mind made up on how to serve in this church and how to do my job. I have my mind made up and nobody's going to move me. And sometimes the pastor will get up and he'll say something like, I think it would be good for the church to take a 21-day fast. We hear that, and for the tender-hearted ones of us, we say, Pastor said it, I'm going to listen, I'm going to follow my pastor. Why? Because he loves me and he knows what's best for me. But others of us sit on the pew and we hear something like that and we say, what does a pastor know? Doesn't he know I have health issues? I'm the exception to the rule. I'm not going to do anything. And a lot of times we make ourselves the exception when the Holy Spirit wants us to be the one. The reason pastor's saying that is because God told him to say something like that, to speak to your heart and to my heart. A lot of times we come to church just out of formality and not with a tender heart to say, God, teach me what you want. And this morning as we go through this, Don't look at yourself as the exception to the rule. Don't say, well, this message is for the person sitting next to me. No, the message today is for all of us. Because as long as God has put you on this earth, you still have a purpose. Now, you may not know exactly what your purpose is, but it's your job to discover what His purpose is in your life. And as long as you live here on this earth, know that God has a purpose. If there was no purpose, He would remove you and take you to heaven to be with Him. Beautiful in the sight of God are the death of His saints. 
God thinks that's a great thing for you to spend time with Him, but He thinks right now it's more important for you to be here on this earth. Why? So that you can do good works for Him. So don't put yourself in the exception rule, but rather put yourself in the rule of I'm going to be a standard bearer. I'm going to do everything that I can to live out what God has intended for me to live out. If anyone uh, contributes like I contribute, would the church be uh, better off or worse off? If everybody looked at you, if the microscopes were on your life and they said, I'm going to follow exactly what this person does. Are they going to be a better Christian or a worse Christian? Are they going, is the church going to uh, 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 thrive or is it going to shrink? If all of us gave the way that you gave, would we be able to pay the electric bill? If everybody soul win the way that you soul win, would we have new converts in our church on Sunday? If everyone spoke to their spouse the way you speak to their spouse, would the divorce rate increase? A lot of times we look at others and say, well, they're the ones that are holding the weight and I can rely on their goodwill and their good works so that the overall vision and purpose and goals of the church are accomplished But I don't want to be a spectator in the sport. I want to be a participant. If there was ever a story about White Oak Baptist Church that was published, I hope and I believe we're on a good track of seeing God do some incredible things as He's already done in the life of our church. If somebody were to write down all the different things that the White Oak Baptist Church was able to be a part of, Would you know in your heart of hearts that you were in the midst of all of that? Or would you read through and say, I watched all that happen, but I never actually helped to make it happen. I like to be an instrument, but my instrument was just kind of set aside. A lot of us need today to understand that God has a purpose and God wants you to be ready to every good work. Well, uh, I can't help uh, out around the church because... Would everyone else had that mentality towards serving than you do? Would there be more people serving or would there be uh, nobody serving? I can't attend Sunday evening or Wednesday evening because, well, what if everyone showed up as many times uh, to church as you do? Would we have Sunday evening or even a Wednesday evening service? Would canceling service make make us a healthy church? If not, then your behavior makes you an unhealthy Christian. The church is made up of a body of believers. It's not a building. It's not an abstract concept. It is people. The church is people. We are only as healthy as the individual people make up collectively. Are you a sick Christian? Guess what? A part of our church is sick today. Are you a healthy Christian? Guess what? Part of our church is healthy. 
We all need to be rallied together in the body of Christ, ever pressing towards the mark, as the Apostle Paul says, towards the prize of the high calling of Jesus Christ. And listen, for those that are sick, we're not here to cast stones on you. We're here to say, hey, there is a healing balm found in Scripture to help you out of whatever difficulties you're going through so that you can thrive, so that you can be ready to every good work here in the church. What if everyone served, gave, participated, showed up, loved, cared, worshipped, and sang like you do? Are you holding the standard for the Lord, or are you making yourself the exception to the rule? This morning I want us to see three aspects of good works out of the book of Titus as we consider this question. Are you ready unto every good work? The very first work that we all need to understand today is the work of salvation. The work of salvation. Paul writes to Titus and tells him to teach these people to do good works. But he makes it crystal clear that their works are not meant to save them. That, that work, that work of, of saving was already done on the cross of Calvary. If you're in Titus, Titus chapter 3 verse number 5 says, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Sadly, many false uh, false, uh, falsely believe that somehow they can get to heaven through their good works or behavior. But Scripture makes it abundantly clear that the work of salvation is not done by me or by you, but was done entirely by the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look deeper into this work of salvation that's not by us, but by what Christ has done on the cross. In letter A, I want us to see the debt you cannot pay. The debt you cannot pay. If you're in that verse, chapter 3, verse number 5 of Titus, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. Saved us from what? What is there to be saved from? Well, we need to be saved from our sin. All of us have sinned. And the Bible says, because of our sin, we all fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3, verse number 23. Romans 3, verse number 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is nobody that can be in the presence of a perfect God. Because we are imperfect. We lie. We cheat, we lust after, we deceive, we do all kinds of things out of our own selfishness and pride that put ourselves in a contrary position against the Holy God. God is holy, we are unholy. And because of our sin, there is a debt that must be paid. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse number 20 says this, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. That word death in the Bible, a lot of us will think of like a funeral, right? We think of a body that's in a casket that is empty of life. That is death. But biblically, the word death generally means separation. And in some contexts, it does mean the separation of the soul 
from the body. But there is another death that is mentioned in Scripture that is way more powerful, way more uh, uh, important for us to look at. And that is the separation from us from God. There is an eternal separation because of your sin and my sin. Because of the soul that sins, it shall die. It shall be separated from God for all of eternity. Because we can't be in the presence of a holy God. We fall short of God's perfect standard. And so the only other alternative, if we can't be in the presence of God in heaven for all of eternity, there's only one other place for our soul to dwell. And that is in hell. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place that Luke chapter 16 talks about a place of torments. You understand the rich man is still there to this day. Still uh, uh, desiring for just a, a drop of water on his tongue and cooling him uh, from the torments of the flames in which he has been for nearly 2,000 years. And listen, my friend, it's a debt that must be paid because of our sin. Revelation chapter 21, verse number 8 says, And all liars shall have their part in the lake of fire, which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. I don't know about you, but I'll be honest with you at this moment. I've lied before. I've told half-truths, which are whole lies. I've said things with my lips that I should not have said. And because of that sin, even that one sin, that condemns me. But if I'm being fully transparent, there are a, a, a plethora of things in which God can look at me as a sinner and say, you truly are indebted. I think if we were to take a toll of my entire life, you could probably fill this entire platform with all different kinds of things that I have done. And I think if you're being honest you could take that position as well and understand that you are just as much a sinner as the person that sits next to you. And that sin has a price that must be paid. You are in debt to a holy God. It's a debt that you cannot pay, but somebody else came and paid that debt for you, which leads us to letter B, the desire he could not quench. Titus chapter 3, verse number 5 and 6, Not by works of righteousness we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us from our sin by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which He showed uh, on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Christ lost every man and woman to sin and its curse way back in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You read Genesis chapter 3, even leading up to that in Genesis chapter 2, that mankind walked with God in the cool of the day. Just as I'm speaking to you, and you have spoken to many others in this church, and, and all uh, uh, we fellowship one with another, is the same way the Holy God would communicate and dwell with His people. He would converse. He would spend time with them. He would cherish them. He would teach them. He would show all these things. Why? Because at man, that point in time, mankind was sinless. But what separated that fellowship was their sin. God could no longer look at them and have that fellowship. 
And in John chapter 3, verse number 16, we all know this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. The Bible says, For God so loved the world. He loved you how much? He loved you so much that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. 1 John chapter 4, verse number 10 says this, Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. That word propitiation means a substitutionary payment. Imagine with me today that you uh, were steeped in credit card debt. You had maxed out your credit card all the way. And you're looking at the final total and you say, there is no way that I could possibly pay all this off with the interest and, and with all the fees and with all the other things. It'll take a lifetime for me to be able to even come close to paying this. Everybody pay attention up here. Imagine with that credit card debt, somebody were to look down on you and they were to see that you had such a massive amount of debt. And they picked up the phone and they called your credit card company and said, hey, I want to pay that bill 100%. I don't want them to face the interest. I don't want them to face any fees. I don't want them to have any, uh, any, any uh, ramifications from this. I want to pay that debt you would be amazed. You would look at the statement the next month and see zeros all across the board and you would be excited. You'd be thrilled at the fact that that deep credit card debt that you were in was completely paid off. In the context of our sin, sin gave us a debt that was far greater than any credit card could incur. It was something that we could try to work Uh, our entire lives and try to be good and we would still fall short. You see, in God's standard, He looks at us and He says that all of our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. They're the sickest things. Why? Because compared to God's holiness, there is second to none. There is nobody that is able to get to the full scope of being perfect save one person and His name was Jesus Christ. God looked at His Son, Jesus, and He sent Him to this earth. And He said, You are the only one who is capable of taking the sins of all mankind and putting it on your debt because you have no debt. You have no sin You have nothing that I look at as wrong. You are perfect. You are sinless. And He put the sins of all mankind on His Son, on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus hung there and He bore the sins of all mankind. And He died and was buried in a grave. And He ascended to heaven. And He uh, uh, made intercession for us and, 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 and paid the price that was necessary so that God could look at us no longer as full of sin, but rather sinless. And He calls us justified if we will call on Him to save us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 3 says this, For I delivered unto you first of all that which also I received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. The debt of sin is far too great. Our God in His mercy can forgive that debt. He sent Jesus down to this earth to die on the cross, to suffer your punishment, to pay the price for your sin. How much does God love you? Enough to send His only begotten Son to die in your place. But that leads us to the third point this morning of, of uh, number one, and that is the decision you must make. The decision you must make. Romans chapter 10, verse number 9 says this. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You'll be saved from the penalty of your sin if you will but just call on Him with your lips and believe in what you say uh, beyond just uh, the words that come out of your mouth. Your heart is a true reflection of this truth. You're putting all your eggs in one basket. You're putting everything lock, stock, and barrel in the fact that Jesus Christ died for you. If you would go to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23 and... We'll hasten with this point, but I believe there's perhaps somebody in here today that I'm speaking on the debt of your sin, and you are feeling the conviction. You are emotionally in fear of what is to happen with your debt and sin, and when you stand before a holy God, what is going to happen to you? And you know that you cannot merit your way into heaven, and and right now you need to understand these truths. Luke chapter 23, verse number 39, we find this, this story here. It's a true story. Jesus is on the cross and He's speaking. He's, he's hanging here in agony and pain, bearing the sins of all mankind. And He's got two men on either side of Him. Thieves. They've been condemned. They've been hanging on the very same cross that Jesus is hanging on and facing the same torments. One of the malefactors which were hanging railed on him, saying, If thou be the Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him, saying, Dost not thou fear God, seeing that thou art in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, meaning we were found guilty because we truly are guilty, For we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. Meaning this guy was found guilty, but he didn't do anything. He said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today, thank you, shalt thou be with me in paradise. You have two men on either side of Jesus. One man was speaking harshly to Jesus, one tempting Him and trying to get selfish gain from what Jesus was doing and and saying, hey, if if you really are the Christ, (laughs) you could save yourself, but you better save us too. On the other side, you have a man who, out of humility, looked to Jesus as His Savior for eternity. And said, hey, Lord, please, remember this day. Remember when I entered into your presence. 
Lord looks at him and says, Surely you will, I will remember you this day in paradise. There was a man that refused to call on Christ. There was a man who chose to call on Christ. Both men were so close. Both men were able to see the works of God. Even those that were uh, persecuting Jesus. Even the centurions. They could look up and they knew for sure this truly was the Christ. You have one man who's hanging uh, just on the other side of Jesus and, and he's deriding Him. And you have another man who's calling out and saying, God, please save me. Please take me to heaven. I'm just a few short moments away. Remember me. Today, each of you have been in close proximity to the Gospel. You've heard what is being said. Some of you today are like this man over here who rejects Christ. Who rejects what Christ has done. And you mock Him. I can get there myself. I don't need Him. I'll just work my way to heaven. I'll do good works. But on the other side, all of us need to have a heart of humility, a heart that says, I cannot get myself to heaven, but I'm calling on You, Christ, to save me. We all must have a humility of the heart, and we must have a time where we prayed and accepted Jesus Christ to be our personal Lord and Savior. Going back to my illustration about that credit card debt, Imagine a friend, a family member, a coworker, or somebody like that said, hey, I'll pay your debt. You said, no, I'll pay it myself. How foolish that would be. To not accept a free gift that would expunge a debt. And how much more foolish it is that a holy God would extend Himself and die on a cross for the sins of all mankind. And we scoff and we say, I don't need Jesus. I can do my own works. I'll just keep going to church the rest of my life. I'll just keep helping older people across the street. I'll just keep donating to the local charity. I'll just keep doing all these good works. But listen, none of those good works will ever expunge the debt that you have on your account. Many of us will die with a debt we could never pay in this earth. We must pay it in a place called hell. All of us today need to have a time where we have called on Christ to save us. With the heart man believeth, with the mouth confession is made into salvation. Who today, in the sound of my voice, would say, Pastor Andrew, I need to be saved from my sin. I've never had a moment where I've called on Christ to save me. I'm sitting here and I, you have laid out clearly that there is a debt far greater than I could ever do. I need saved. At the end of this message, we'll give you an opportunity. You can come down. We'll partner you up. A man with a man, a lady with a lady, and show you how you can clearly know, according to the Bible, not by what I'm saying, not by what anybody else in this church is saying, but by what the Bible has to say. And you can leave here with a peace that passes all understanding, knowing that if you were to die on your way home, that you would enter... Sinless paradise in, the heaven, in heaven for all of eternity. You can have that hope. But it's all about you making the decision. You see, in the latter end of this service, you will have a choice. Many sit in these seats and they say, well, I'll take care of it later. And you know, later never comes. 
Why? Because the conviction of God is on them now. And time goes by and they don't even realize that their window of opportunity is closed and now they're standing on heaven's gates. God won't let them in because they did not make the choice when they had an opportunity to call on Him to save them. I'm not here to scare anybody today, but I do want to pose to you the harsh reality of the brevity of life. James tells us that the life is but a vapor. It appears for a little while and vanisheth away. You know what a vapor is? A vapor is you going out on a cold day and taking a breath, and you see your breath. It's in front of you, but then it dissipates, and it's gone. That's why God says, hey, today is the day of salvation. You don't know what tomorrow has in store. You don't know what's going to happen to you. Today, at the end of the service, you need to make the choice, my friend, to say, I'm going to get over the embarrassment. I'm going to get over the comfort uh, of this seat and just being in my own little corner. And some of you need to get up, come down, and come speak to somebody and settle what has uh, uh, pricked you for so long. Some of you have heard preaching time and time again. You say, oh, I'll deal with it later. I'll deal with it later. No, no, no. Settle it. Like I said, there's peace that passes all understanding. Today can be your day of salvation and you can leave here with that peace. The work of salvation is the first thing we must understand. And it's a work not necessarily done by us. It's a choice that we choose to make and accept what God has offered to us. And number two, the work of, of the superficial. This is what Paul is trying to lay out here in Titus uh, as he's talking about being ready to every good work. There are those men and women out there that are in positions of authority and they are superficial. They look the part on the outside. They have the polished speech in some regards, but their heart is after selfish gain. And that's what Titus had to fight as he was going through these churches, he would have to find the ones that were uh, uh, fakes, the ones who were superficial, the ones who were in the ministry just for filthy lucre, for their own benefit's sake, and had to discern and put people in charge and in positions where they could truly serve the Lord out of a pure heart. Titus chapter 1, verse number 16 says this, they profess that they know God. These are people in the church, rulers in the church here in this island of Crete, in these number, uh, number of churches. But in works, they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and unto every good work reprobate. And I want us to see here that they're superficial in their mouths. And you'll go back just to verse number 10. The Bible says this, For there are many unruly and vain talkers, and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, these are Jews, whose uh, mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not. And so they're vain talkers. That is uh, to mean this, that they are empty. They stand around and talk about things that are just, re they really just don't matter. Rarely do you find many speaking about uh, the interests of spiritual matters. 
They get focused on talking about trivial things, things that really don't have much substance to them. And when you get around them, they're not really talking about the Lord. They're more so talking about themselves and, and, and wanting to uplift themselves and not put themselves in, uh, in light of a holy God. And, and so they, uh, they, they deceive as well. This means that they lie or give facts in such way that will mislead others. They have their own agenda. They love to uh, reframe events to subtly tear down another or uh, anyone that stands in their way of self-promoting and, and, uh, and adoration there. They subvert whole houses, as the Scriptures say. It's not enough for them to just get one person away and skew their doctrine and skew what they believe, but they are desiring to take down whole households. And I've seen it in ministry in the two churches that I've had the privilege to uh, serve with. You have people that get around the corners of the church. They find simple-minded people. They begin to share things against the leadership and position. Oh, that pastor. Bless his heart. We don't have that phrase up here in the north, right? Down south, that's everywhere. If you hear somebody say, bless his heart, you look out, right? You're getting into a gossip session, all right? Bless his heart. He's got great intentions, but yeah, he's not really a great leader. Yeah, bless him, he's, he's trying. They begin to wheel some doubt, begin to wheel some false things and begin to tear down the authority and that person that was simple-minded begins to hyper-focus on what that person said and now they look at the leadership and they can only see them through that context of negativity and well they really are imperfect oh they're not the pastor that I thought they were when I first got here he's not the leader or he's not the orator or he's not the preacher or he's not the you fill in the blank of what you want from your pastor he's not all that I had hoped he would be And then they go home and they sit around the table and they say, well, I just don't think this church is really great for us. I don't think the leadership structure is really great for us. And you see how those subtle things that are mentioned in passing not only skew the perspective of one, but skew the perspective of entire households. And I've seen so many that at one point were on fire for the Lord, were great servers in the, uh, in the local church. They were using their gifts and abilities and somebody got around them and, and took them away and subverted them from accomplishing what God's perfect will was to now turning and now they're no longer in church. Why? Because they just can't look at leadership the same way. They've had a little bit of doubt. They've had a little bit of uh, uh, vain speaking. They've been deceived and now they're at a church altogether. And listen, my friend, it can happen to you just as much as it's happened to so many others. We must, we must be careful. Satan is subtle. He was subtle in the beginning. The Bible says that the serpent is more subtle, was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God has made. That's Genesis chapter 3, verse number 1. Satan works in subtlety. You're not going to find somebody out in the lobby today with a billboard that says, I'm against White Oak Baptist Church. I'm against the Lord. 
but they deal subtly in their heart. It's written all over. In their words, they, they can't help but throw in negativity here and there. And what you and I need to do is we need to be careful to not get around those people. We need to be careful to not tear down and create a division amongst our church. We need to be a unified church. God hates discord in the church body. He warns against the divisiveness. In Proverbs chapter 6, a false, uh, 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 verse number 19, uh, a false uh, witness that speaketh lies. These are six things which the Lord hates. And he says, he that soweth discord among the brethren. How do you know somebody is a hypocrite? Spend any time around them and they will pretend to be one way at church and in front of leadership and then talk different uh, 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 behind the backs of leadership. We gotta be careful, church. There are churches that have uh, disintegrated because they are not unified bodies. And what we need to do is, hey, when you begin to hear some negativity, no matter how much truth there is to that negativity, you need to stop it because it's going to spread far beyond anything else. I've known churches that have split over colors of carpet. We laugh, but that's, that's, hello, that's, that's the 21st century church in America. The pastor didn't listen to what I said about the color carpet, so I'm out of here. I'm not just leaving, I'm taking other people with me. I heard about a pastor just not too long ago. He's having issues with a, a staff member that was working for him, and they just agreed in a meeting that, hey, I think we need to part ways, and what you desire from this church and what the senior pastor desires from this church, two different directions here. So let's just not make a big deal of it. Let's just try to find another ministry in which you can get settled and, and, and be a part of it and serve God full time. That, 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 that assistant pastor looked at that senior pastor and said, you have not seen the last of me. And you know what he's trying to do even at this moment? He's trying to send emails to anybody that will listen to him. And he's already in another church, already in another part of the world, but you know what? He's not done being divisive. And that stuff happens here in church. Maybe not our church right now, but listen, it can. If we give a, uh, just a little bit of room, Satan will take it. We must be mindful of these things. Letter B, not only their mouths, they're speaking evil and trying to divide, but their motives. Their motives are different. Titus chapter 1, verse number 11, whose mouths must be shut, who subvert whole houses, teaching things that they ought not, for filthy lucre's sake. Why are they teaching these things? Because they want to benefit. They want the money. They want the power. They want the position. Verse number 17, or verse number 12, rather. One of them, even a prophet of their own, said, the Cretans are always liars, uh, evil, boasters, uh, slow-bellied. As we look throughout human history, we can see that people generally abuse power so that they can gain one of three things. They try to gain power, some kind of control over a people. They try to gain a position so that they can have physical um, uh, uh, joy satisfaction, or they try to gain a position for money. 
I think we all know of people that have created a, a, a celebrity status for themselves. They get on TV and they say, you've got to give to me. I need this jet. I need this big house. I need. And that is what propels their ministry. is not for the glorification of the Lord, but the furtherance of their wallet. Beefing up their checkbook. Giving them prestige. Giving them control. Unfortunately, there are corrupt people in churches. Churches many times are easy targets for bad actors. They see a chance to put uh, on a mask and act like something they are not so that they can make themselves rich or uh, uh, boss people around or in worst case scenarios, prey upon the vulnerable. So their motives are all about self. Let her see their morality. Their morality. Verse number 16, Titus chapter 1. They profess that they know God, but in their works they deny Him, being abominable or dis- and disobedient, and that every good work reprobate. What moral uh, guide this? What, mor- what morals guide this type of person? They're rebellious. They're abominable, meaning they are. Uh, they meaning they need to be uh, vomited out or expelled from the church. They are disobedient. They constantly question the motives and actions of their leaders. They cannot and will not be a team player. What we need to do is be a unifying body. We were talking today in our life group class with the couples and. We talked about how we need to, uh, this is just kind of side conversation in the beginning, but we need to follow our leader as they follow Christ. That's what the Apostle Paul said. He said, follow me as I follow Christ. And as long as we know that our leader is in line with Christ, guess what? We can follow them. Guess what? We don't need to question every single move that they make. Guess what? We're not sitting in the pastor's seat. We're not seeing the full scope of everything that's going on. But listen, I know this. I know our pastor prays regularly. I know he's here on his hands and knees praying specifically for everyone. I know that he's doing his daily devotions. I know that he's studying God's Word. And listen, all the notes and everything that's being presented today was prepared by our pastor. He took the time to study and exegete Scripture to make sure that the church is getting a healthy dose of spirituality. Some of us, we question them and we push back. We become rebellious. The reprobate. This means they, they, uh, uh, it means of no value, the bad, worthless, or unqualified even to be in the position. This is a person who uh, publicly looks like a great leader and talks like a great leader. They are uh, winsome and, and well-dressed. They are impressive, but privately they are rebellious and, and, and divisive. They are reprobate. They are unqualified. They should not be followed. Even Jesus warned about these superficial hypocrites making their way into, uh, into uh, the uh, disciples of the Lord. As He spoke in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 15 and 16, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing. But un, uh, uh, inwardly they are ravening wolves. They, they shall know them, you shall know them by their fruit. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? 
We need to be careful of the people that we follow. But when a man of God is ordained of God and is following after God, we need to follow them wholeheartedly and follow them as they follow Christ. So we have the work of salvation. It's the work that everybody must accept in, in order to thrive and have a home in heaven one day. And we see the work of the superficial. There are people out there in church. This is a warning sign today. Be careful of the sheep and uh, uh, the, uh, the wolves in sheep's clothing that desire division and divisiveness. And letter three, the work of godly servants. The work of godly servants. One work is done by God. One work is done by those that are divisive. But what is our work? What are we to do? What are we as a church, as a body fitly joined together, what are we supposed to do? Go to Titus chapter 3, verse number 1. We'll be here for the vast majority of the service here. Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to uh, obey magistrates. So uh, be obedient to your your government. Uh, Submit yourselves to these uh, people that are in position because they are uh, ordained of God. To be ready to every good work. To speak evil of no man. To be no brawlers, but gentle, showing all meekness unto all men. So as we look at the work of godly servants, we must see their pattern. Their pattern. Titus chapter 2, verse number 7 says this, In all things show thyself a pattern of good works. When something happens, when people look at how you respond, how do they look at that? Right? For instance, I, I, I shared a, a kind of a little bit of silly illustration. Somebody falls right in front of you. And there's people watching. And they see that. They look at you and say, he's not going to help. <laughs> he, he doesn't do stuff like that. He doesn't, he doesn't care about people like other people do. Right? Or maybe they look at you and say, oh, surely that person's going to help. Surely that person likes to get involved. Surely that person likes to, to do good works. Show thyself a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity. Have you ever looked at someone or something that was broken and thought to yourself, I see a pattern of bad behavior or brokenness here? Uh, do you know of those who uh, do right also, uh, uh, or do, do you know that those who do right also develop patterns of uh, good works? Uh, Titus chapter 2, verse number 1 through 8 says this, But speak thou the things which become sound doctrine, that the aged men be sober, grave, temperate, sound in faith, in charity, in patience. The aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. We continue to go down uh, the scriptures here and, and read some more things that are our pattern. Verse number four, uh, the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, uh, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. Verse number six, young men likewise exhort to be sober minded. Every time you see that word sober, a lot of times we think of alcohol, right? But it simply put is to be in a right mind. To be in a right mind. You could be drunk with alcohol, but you know what? You could be drunk with social media too. You could see the world just through the social media's eyes and that begins to distort your mind from what reality is. Listen, I serve as as the youth pastor here and there are many teenagers that 
uh, they see the world through this, this filtered scope. They think that the teenagers around them just live this perfect life, taking selfie and look at me, I'm doing this, and look at me, I'm doing this. You know what? It's creating in them an unsober mind. They're not in the right mind. Why? Because they're so filled with what the social media message is going on and the message that you and I want to portray on our side of the social media. You understand, we don't post negative things on social media. Hardly ever, right? I don't sit there and share every woe that's going on in my life. What I do share is the accomplishments in my life. And it's easy for us to look at that and say, well, he must have it all good, man. He's got it all together. You only see what I want you to see on that side of the camera. You don't see what actually is happening. You know what? Our teenagers today, they're in an un- unstable mind. They're in an unsober mind. Why? Because they are, they're being duped by a false reality out there. I could go on for a while. Why am I so passionate about this point? Because I'm the youth pastor here. And I see it, not only in our teens, we got good teens. We have some really good teens. But I see it in our whole world as, as a whole. Our teenagers are struggling. And you know what? You know what teenagers become? They become adults. And those adults become filled with anxiety. become filled with a poor self-image. Say, other teenagers will grow out of it. Yeah, they grow out of it into something else. They grow out of it into adults. Many of you are sitting here. My generation is growing up and they're confused. God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. And we need as Christians, not just teenagers, Christians as a whole, we need to be very careful to be sober-minded, to be in a right mind. How do we have a right mind? Get more in God's Word and you're going to see things from a whole other perspective. You get more in God's Word, guess what? It's going to wash you. It's going to cleanse you. It's going to remove things that, that have, have, have bound you and, 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 and left you in bondage and, and all kinds of fear and things. You get in God's Word, it'll cleanse you. Moving forward. Verse number 7, All things show thyself a pattern of good works and doctrine showing uncorruptness, gravity, sincerity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Sound speech that cannot be condemned. What do you say? What types of things do you talk about in your workplace? What types of things do you talk about in your homes? You speak truth. You have to constantly defend what you're saying because it's not totally true. You have to keep track of all your little lies so that you present the message that you want people to see. Moving forward. That he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil things said of, uh, to say of you. Let her be. Let her be. We've seen a pattern of good works. These are a list of things that we need to pattern ourselves after. But now they had passion. They had passion. Their passions were that they were zealous of good works, according to Titus chapter 2, verse number 14. They were zealous. They had great zeal. I was talking to somebody here just before uh, the service, just before life groups. And they were talking about all the things that God is doing through them. How there's prayers being answered. How there's people being saved. And there's just an excitement. There's a, there's a smile. There's a joy coming from their heart. Why? Because they're excited that they get to be a part of the work of God. A lot of times we come to church and... I have to serve in the nursery again. I have to teach a life group again. This ministry is so dependent upon me. Oh, I have to be an usher. I have to talk to people. 
And you know what? Satan wants to put negativity in our hearts to where we think that serving God is a burden instead of a blessing. The people that were in the right position at the right time at this church were people that were zealous of good works. Can I tell you something? I plan to be serving in church ministry until God calls me home. That's a commitment not just to this church, but to my family, to myself, to my God. That there is nothing greater in my life. There is no pursuit uh, higher than the pursuit of doing good works for the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, oh, I've got to come to Wednesday night Bible study. There is nothing greater in the world than studying the Bible until God comes back. There is no pursuit that's greater than doing good works to the Lord Jesus Christ. Serving His people, loving our neighbors, and loving God with our entire being. When you sing, don't think of it as a dread. Think of it as an opportunity that once again, God gives me breath. Some of you know uh, Pastor R.B. Olette. And um, he's, uh, he travels around, speaks all, all kinds of places. Just uh, about a year or so ago, he uh, developed throat cancer. And uh, they ended up uh, taking out his voice box. And I heard one of, the fir- one of the last public messages he ever preached. I'd heard him all through college. I'd heard him even in high school. And a great preacher, a great orator of Scripture. But I remember him coming to that last message and preaching and his throat was just raw and you really couldn't hear him too well took his voice box you know what that man did not give up just last week i saw a little excerpt from a message where he put in a prosthetic voice box and sure it didn't sound pretty it didn't sound great but you know what the message from his heart was far greater than any word he could possibly say And he preached out of the fact that God's strength is made perfect in our weaknesses. Wow, what a powerful thought that is. You know what? That's a man right there who's dedicated. He's zealous. And he says, there is no greater pursuit. I'm not going to let this cancer get me down. I'm not going to let the fact that I don't have a voice box get me down. I am pursuing wholeheartedly. Uh, every good work that I could possibly do. It's a pattern of who he is. They're passionate. Everyone is zealous about something. Paul says, uh, 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 create a culture within the churches where people are energized about doing good works. It becomes their passion. But in their zeal, they need to be gentle. And they need to learn how to show meekness unto all men. What are you passionate about? What would happen if our Sunday morning crowd became passionate about serving their local church? We need to start coming up with new positions. We start being creative on how we can incorporate uh, people that are zealous of good works to use their gifts and abilities for the Lord. Unfortunately, on Tuesdays, we have a staff meeting. It seems almost every staff meeting there's yet more needs and more positions that could be filled. But who will take the reins? Who will be the one that says, I want to be used more. I want to have this pattern of showing good works. Lastly here, their production, their production. Chapter 3, verse number 8. This is a faithful saying. That these things I will, that thou affirm constantly, that they which have been, uh, that have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. That these things are good and profitable Unto men, verse number 14, and let ourselves also learn to maintain good works for necessary use, that they be not 
unfruitful. This sermon this morning is twofold to those who are uh, only sitting here who aren't serving. This is your time. This is a kick in the pants for you to do something for the Lord. This is a time for you to approach pastor and say, hey, I've been sitting as a bystander too long. It's time to do the work that God has called me to do. It's time to start this pattern of showing forth good works, both in this church and abroad. To those of you who are already serving, already doing a work for the Lord, let me say thank you. Thank you. You're doing it. You're accomplishing the work of the Lord. But we must maintain. Because time will go on and our flesh will kick in. And we'll say, how long do I have to do this? This is, this is tough. This is grueling. This is difficult. We must look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He is the model in which we, uh, uh, we look after. He is the one that we pursue. He is the one that we ultimately serve. And we can look to Him. And as we look to Him, and as we serve, no doubt we will see fruit. The Bible says in Matthew chapter 5, verse number 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your what? Good works. And glorify your Father which is in heaven. We must be a church known for having good works. For doing good works. They don't save you. But that's what God wants us to do after salvation. Work of salvation is already done. We'll be careful to stay away from the people that are going to get us away. The people that are going to distract us. The people that are going to try to be divisive. We need to be people that serve the Lord with a full heart, ready to every good work that comes about. I believe we're on a great trajectory here at our church to see God do many mighty works, as He already has. But it's up to us to be involved in that. We need to be the instruments that God can use to accomplish something greater than any one individual can accomplish themselves. We must be surrendered to the Lord. We must follow Him wholeheartedly. I hope today that you take this challenge to be ready to every good work. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. We covered a lot of ground today. I pray in the beginning of this service that as I spoke broadly, the Holy Spirit would speak in your heart specifically. If there's somebody within the sound of my voice, after that first point, we talked about salvation. And I was very specific with you. If there's anybody within the sound of my voice today that would say, Pastor Andrew, I'm going I'm to be honest with you. You mentioned about how to go to heaven, and I'm not 100% sure that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. Would you say, Pastor Andrew, please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up? You're that per- I'm that person that you were speaking to. I'm that person that does not know if I were to die today that I'd go to heaven. Don't be embarrassed. Don't let people around you distract you. Don't let anything that's going on in this environment hinder you from making the most important decision to let God save you from your sin. Would you, with a quickly upraised hand, nobody's looking around, say, Pastor Andrew, I don't know that if I were to die, I'd go to heaven. Slip your hand right up right back down with that testimony everyone in here has professed to be to be saved i don't know what's going on in your heart but i didn't see any hands doesn't mean that 
That's definitely the truth. But hey, I of you today would say, Pastor Andrew, you talked about doing good works. And you know what? I've been a bystander for far too long. I've been on the bleachers watching everything happen, but I haven't been participating like I should. And you know what? God's working in my heart, and He's telling me right now, I need to have a pattern of good works, and I need to be ready to every good work. Pastor Andrew, would you pray for me? Would you raise your hand? God's speaking to me right now that I need to be doing some good works, more works than I'm currently doing here in this church. I need to use my gifts, my abilities, my talents for the Lord. Thank you for your honesty.